Hello, and welcome to the Classicist Podcast. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, here with Victor Davis Hansen, the Martin and Neely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. And Victor, we did a podcast last week about your new book, The Second World Wars, How the First Global Conflict Was Fought and Won. And we talked a lot about the substance of the book, um, which you're probably getting fatigued by given the amount of publicity one has to do to promote one of these things. So in order to give you a bit of a break from that… And also to give some sort of special insight to our classicist listeners, I thought we'd do a little bit of a behind-the-scenes episode on the the story of this book. And uh, let me just start here. You decide to write a book about World War II. There are a lot of books out there on World War II. This is one of the most exhaustively chronicled series of events in human history. So I take the very fact of you writing this as evidence that you think the current World War II scholarship maybe leaves aspects of the war underappreciated or, or misunderstood. What were you setting out to add to the conversation about the war? Yeah, that's a very good point because, I mean, as an editor or a publisher will tell you, there's 7,000 books published a year. So it's kind of arrogant to think that you can add to that discussion, especially when you're not by training uh, or during academic career a World War II historian. So my thinking was threefold. One was as a classicist and general military historian, I could look back at some of the events, maybe as others might not be interested or not might not be as able to, and say, you know, if you're going to go into the Mediterranean throughout history, whether you're a crusader or whether you're an Ottoman or whether you're a Greek or whether a Roman, you really do need to take four or five places, uh, Cyprus, uh, Crete, Sicily, Malta, and Gibraltar. And if you don't take those, you can control the Mediterranean. So why the Axis did not take Malta and Gibraltar uh, turned out fatal to them. So there were things like that. Uh, geography, why is the Mediterranean important in a, t- in a period in which the shift of civilization had moved northward to Germany and Holland and Britain and France? And the answer was it ties three continents together and with the Suez, it it allows direct transit to the Indian Ocean. So I, I wanted to look at that in a way of maybe a broader world historical canvas. The second thing is um, I, I thought that I could organize it in a way that might be a little bit different. So I, I tried to think, how was the war fought, uh, earth, wind, earth, uh, water, air, in the skies, beneath the surface, on the surface, at land, and then... I might be able to accept, assess which power did what the most effectively and which choices turned out to be irrelevant or actually critical. So to give one example, if you're going to spend the equivalent of a billion dollars, you'd be better to do it on a B-29, a proven technology of four-engine bombing. Uh, if you want to convey one pound of explosive per dollar or whatever ratio you use, then an experimental one such as a V-1 or V-2 rocket, especially with the limited resources you have. Or if you're Japan and you uh, you have a choice, you can build a Mushashi or Yamato battlefield, uh, battleship. But if you make that choice, you're going to lose about 50 destroyers that are going to be much cheaper to operate and cover a lot more territory. And so do you want to build a tiger tank that takes about one hour of maintenance for every one hour it's on the road, or you want to build a less uh, impressive Sherman tank that can go 10 hours on the road for every one hour of maintenance and build 50,000 of them rather than, you know, 
1,400 Tigers. So these decisions all had a common theme, and that was the Allies were erred on the side of practicality, durability, serviceability, pragmatism, and um, the Axis powers erred on the side of gigantism, building a big rail gun or building the world's biggest battleship uh, or building building the world's biggest tank. Uh, And that was sort of in the realm of the fantastic. And I suggested that by doing the book that way, it would not only be different, but it would explain maybe more cogently why the Axis lost as they did. And then finally, I wanted to look at the war in a way that maybe sometimes military historians don't look at it. Who were the winners and who were the losers in terms of how they treated one another, uh, whether they kept their word, how long they fought. And just to give a couple of examples what I meant by that, uh, we, does anybody really appreciate that Britain was the only one of the six belligerents that fought the first day of the war as soon as Germany invaded Poland and the last day of the war on September 2nd, 1945? No, none of the other six major belligerents did that. Or does anybody really appreciate that Russia was the only of the six belligerents to cut a deal, both formal and informal, with all of the belligerents. It cut a deal with us, it cut a deal with the British, it cut a deal with the Germans and the Italians, and it cut a deal with the Japanese. But So I was trying to look at it in a fresh way of asking simple questions like that. Victor, books like these tend to do pretty well in terms of sales. There's a pretty healthy market for military history volumes, especially if they're written for a general audience. And yet at the same time, you have this interesting cross-current where the the academy has largely abandoned military history outside of explicitly military institutions. There seem to be very few colleges or universities that are really interested in the field anymore. Uh, What do you anticipate the effects of those trends, both on the popular side and the academic side, are going to mean for military history as a discipline and for military historians? Well, I mean, there's two military histories. There's the common field that everybody wants to read about because war is the ultimate um, drama as it is because the stakes are life and death. So it holds a macabre attraction for everybody. And yet, in terms of the academic or the intellectual scene, especially as it's defined by the university, it's one of the most uh, politically incorrect fields. So we have this sort of paradox or disconnect that a field that most of the public wishes to learn about is the least popular in the university, and we're training the least number of academic historians. So the result of that is you can walk into Barnes & Noble and you can go through the literary criticism section or the postmodernism section or the gender section, and it will be dwarfed by the military history section. But when you go into a university by faculty profile, you'll see that that's not true. It's just the opposite. And so the result of that is that it's the one field where more people are writing a military history outside of the academic uh, environment than any other. And I think that can be good, but there is also a science of academic and scholarship where your young graduate students are taught how to assess relative evidence, how to express themselves, and, and have proper citations. So military history now is sort of a free-for-all. There's no law in the arena. It's just let the readership adjudicate, but we're not training uh, scholarly 
we're not training, I should say, future scholars that follow the rules of academic. Sometimes it's pretense, but sometimes there's rules and regulations. And so it's both encouraging and disturbing at the same time. You and I did a podcast over the summer on the movie Dunkirk and how it corresponded to the reality of the events there. And that movie was very favorably received by critics, but it also did quite well at the box office. Uh, There's a movie on Churchill's leadership during World War II that's coming out shortly. We are now more than 70 years removed from the end of the war. The generation that fought in it is rapidly dying off. Why is it in your judgment that World War II still has such a hold on the American imagination all this time later? Well, it was the biggest war in history, and it was the biggest American war in history. If you you think away the Confederate and the unions both being Americans, so it was the most costly uh, war and the most expensive in American history. And it was a conventional war before the last big conventional war that was worldwide before the onset of nuclear weapons. So there was a way that you could finish it without blowing up the world. And uh, we haven't really seen such a clear black and white dichotomy since then. And by that I mean most people in the world would have preferred to be liberated by the Allies and occupied by the Axis. Um, nobody had quite ever imagined since Genghis Khan or Attila the Hun that a modern industrial state would butcher in, in, in systematic fashion six million people the way the Germans did, or in the case of Japan and China, just indiscriminately murdering millions. So the the idea of good versus evil has never been clearer, and that has a hold on all of us as well. And then, of course, the United States won, and it won unambiguously in a way that it never really did again if you collate Korea or Vietnam or Iraq or Afghanistan. So there were good guys and bad guys, winners and losers, and we were on the plus side of those ledgers. I guess this question that I'm about to pose to you is really about the academy and intellectual life in present-day America. But I look at the trajectory of your career, Victor. You, you start off as an undergrad at UC Santa Cruz, end up getting a PhD from Stanford in classics. You start the classical languages program at Cal State Fresno, and then you end up with this broad popular reach with these nearly – I think by my count, almost two dozen books. You've got – enough columns and essays that it's, it's kind of hard to keep up with. You've got the perch at Hoover, and of course, you continue working on your farm. Um, let me float a thesis to you in the hopes that you'll tell me it's wrong. It's, okay. it's going to be very hard for a college kid who's listening to you now who thinks, I want to be the next Victor Davis Hanson to chart that path because the, the role that you play, what used to be called the public intellectual, the scholar who can translate the material for the layman in an accessible way, is not something that the academy, broadly speaking, has an interest in producing anymore. Is, is that fair or have the public intellectuals always been swimming a little upstream? No, I, I think that's fair. Um, the reputation of the campus and the scholars at an all-time low, and that's because we became so specialized and so detached from the general culture that people, we weren't able to communicate with people and people didn't really like the culture of a campus and didn't like who we are. So I think my recommendation is if you're going to write and people want to read it and you're going to have ideas, 
that people would like to either support or reject, at least they'll be out there, is to to try to be as broad as possible and don't shut yourself off from anyone. So I had very good parents, and their their attitude was always, you never know where you're going to find intelligence. Or My mother was a first female appellate court judge in California, and yet in her 60s she was still going to farmer's market with us in a pickup to peddle fruit and Santa Cruz and Carmel. And I guess the point I'm making is that when I get my hair cut and I see some guy barely speak English in the waiting chair, or uh, today I talked to a poor white guy who was uh, helping me put some pavement on the driveway, or if I go in town and I talk to a deputy sheriff that I used to have as a student, which I did yesterday, I don't I approach it with the idea that they're going to tell me something or they're going to say something or they're going to have an observation which I can find valuable. And so that time is never wasted. Not that I'm being mercenary. I just enjoy talking to these different types of people. And then the other thing I think is important is that you have to have a pattern and a code. So when I was in graduate school as an undergraduate, I always said to myself, these are the things I have to do here's the amount of time available in the day, you're going to have to make a choice. Uh, these are how many hours you must read, how many hours are necessary to read, how much hours to exercise. You can't go out and drink or you can't go out and party or maybe you should take a break and go to the beach. But whatever it was, I was always realistic about what was asked and what could be done. And then the code as far as scholarship was always... Um, you need linguistic ex- expertise, foreign language expertise. You know, need know, to know how to write engagingly. You must master grammar and syntax. You should have a broad range outside your field. Uh, and then you have to think inductively. And that means that certain ideas that are politically akin to your own may not be valid. Or and I'll give you an example in this book, I didn't really like the New Deal. And I think it was counterproductive. But when I looked at exactly the decisions that Roosevelt made and the and the method that he mobilized the American economy, I developed a great respect for him. And in the book, he was I, I, I judge him a smashing success, even though I, I didn't agree with his politics because I was trying to be empirical. And so, at, by that, if, if the way that I approached things, it really didn't matter to me in the long run whether I drove a tractor for the rest of my life, or I work at Hoover one year or 10 years, or I teach at Hillsdale or don't teach at Hillsdale, because that wasn't the measure of what was success or failure, what I wanted to do or not want to do. I just had a code that wherever I was, I was going to follow it. And my parents really were responsible for that. I think treat people with respect and dignity, regardless of their station. Learn from people that you wouldn't expect you might learn from um, as my mother said, be very nice to people on the way up because you'll be that old saw that you'll, you'll need them on the way down and that everything is cyclical. And then from my own studies of Greek tragedy, and that was one of my specialties, uh, as a student, beware of hubris because nemesis always follows. There's a certain rule in the world, whether it's divine or collective behavior, that, and we're seeing it with Harvey Weinstein and others that the moment you think you're exempt from criticism or or codes of behavior and accountability, 
is usually when something catches up to you. And so tread very softly. And sometimes it's not good at, you know, if I'm here and I'm writing and somebody knocks on the door and they're, you know, a farmer that I knew 10 years ago and he walks in and he wants to give me his exegesis on the whole raisin collapse and what's wrong and that takes an hour and I can't get things done. It's not wise, but usually I try to accommodate those experiences because I, I never know what I'm going to um, learn or what's good or bad for your soul. So the last thing I'll ask you, a little bit of a side issue here, but one that we've actually never discussed on the show before. A, a lot of people will read uh, military history books like yours, and unless they're really versed in the conflict they're reading about – they almost read it as a novel. They're they're trying to construct in their minds what the people and the places look like. And, and Victor, I know you've spent a lot of time on the battlefields in places that you write about in a book like the Second World Wars and in many of your other books as well. For someone who is reading one of those books and, and getting intrigued by the places, can you give us the pitch for why it matters to see these places in person, what it means to actually set foot there? Yeah, I think what happens is that when you're writing you and you're writing as an academic or a scholar in a studio or an office, you lose a first-hand concept of time or space. So you say to yourself, well, a Mark III tank can go 10 miles an hour or 15 miles in the desert, and there's 100 miles, so you should have been there in eight hours. But until you go to Libya and you look at the uh, connection between the sun and the heat and the sand and the people around you, then you see it's not so easy. Or when you go to Malta and you think, wow, it's a very small island. Why couldn't the Germans bomb it into submission? And you start to see the level of fortification, the subterranean nature of a lot of the defenses, time old, and you say, wow, it's very hard to do it. And I'll give you another example People fault the American ability in 1942 and 43 to shut down Germany through strategic bombing. But I've flown a lot to, in commercial aircraft all over Germany and sometimes on jumper jets um, between cities. And once you get up above Germany and you look at that vast expanse of small little towns and farms and rivers and mountains, and the idea that a conventional airplane, even a lot of them, could bomb that country into submission. It's so vast, and it's so productive, and there's so much civilization and infrastructure. It seems mind-boggling that we could ever even attempt it. And by the same token, if I go to Greece, for example, and I ask myself, how did the Greek resistance kill 10,000 German soldiers? And yet, you walk up in the mountains, and you can get lost where one villager doesn't know where you are, uh, 10 miles outside of I've been so many times hiking in Greece and I've asked a villager with a map what's on the other side of the hill and he said I've never been there and it, it's so complex and rugged and difficult and inaccessible the idea that, you, that the Germans were going to occupy that entire 50,000 square miles is, is crazy so it grounds you and I think it's really important to have personal autopsy and to travel but mostly as appreciation of what humans have to do across time and space, that it's very, very hard. I know that when you're farming, you say you can diss five acres an hour of vineyard, and so it's 10 hours, 
and that means I'm going to get 50 hours. I started out thinking that in my 20s and 30s, maybe my 20s. But once you get on a tractor and you look at the heat temperature gauge and the fuel gauge and the um, generator gauge and you see the temperature climb and you break a disc blade or you have a wheel bearing go out, then you understand that that's all, that, that's all theory and reality is predicated on the human um, actuality of terrain and temperature and geography and it's not very conducive to what what people think they can do so it's sort of a humility that follows if you get out and see things firsthand every time i've written about a battle whether it was lepanto or marathon or canine or um, even a crusader battle at hatin once i went there it's it disabused me of my prior stereotypical generalization. All right. Our thanks, as ever, to everyone who tunes into the Classes podcast. As a reminder, Victor's new book is The Second World Wars, How the First Global Conflict Was Fought and Won. We'll be back with another episode soon. For Victor Davis Hansen, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.